2: This is the American Greed podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, on an exclusive island, word spreads about a new arrival.
3: Oh, there's like Your Highness or His Highness.
2: A Saudi prince has blessed Miami with his presence. He talked the part, he dressed the part, he drove the part. <laughs> with a massive oil IPO looming, his Highness brings in more than eight million dollars by promising investors a share of his unfathomable wealth. The idea that there was
4: a Saudi prince in Miami, it whet the appetite of very many people.
2: But despite the bling he shows off on Instagram, You know what it is? You know what it is? It turns out that this Saudi prince is just the king of Khans.
5: He looked like an overweight Hispanic guy from South America. It just looked preposterous. Preposterous.
2: So who is this royal scammer? And how does he pull off his
0: princely scheme? There could be any number of reasons why people find him to be credible. But they do. And they do it again and again. It's, it's really quite astounding.
2: Just off the causeway connecting downtown Miami to Miami Beach, there's a small driveway few have ever seen. Here, cars board a ferry that crosses a narrow channel to an ultra-exclusive enclave called Fisher Island. Forget 90210. Fisher Island has an average salary of $669,000 a year, making 33109 America's richest zip code. Trinity Jordan is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida.
6: You've got Tom Cruise, Oprah Winfrey, you name it, they've got residents there.
2: Jay Weaver is a reporter for the Miami Herald, who covered Anthony Gignac's story. And you have to take a ferry to get there. And they
5: leave on the half hour or so. There's a sense of exclusivity.
2: In March 2017, a man in his late 40s takes the keys to his new penthouse home on the island. When he does, he signs the papers as Khalid bin Sultan Al Saud. He shares a last name with members of Saudi Arabia's ruling family. And to those who catch a glimpse, he looks the part.
6: He's got the, you know, Rolexes, he's got the elaborate jewelry, the Cartier bracelets.
2: Ryan McSeveny is a special agent in the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. He had uh, all the high-end luxury vehicles, Bentleys,
4: Ferraris,
2: uh, Rolls Royces. When he hits the streets, the Prince is accompanied by a bodyguard with a badge that reads Diplomatic Security Service. And his cars are adorned with diplomatic plates. Among those the Prince meets in Miami is Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser.
7: He would dress in the flowing linen, always uh, looked like the latest. Uh, he wore the latest Gucci fur slippers, which I had to go home and Google. I mean, I'd never <laughs> seen anything like that. And, of course, he had that ridiculous necklace for Foxy, which was diamond-encrusted like, you know, Elizabeth Taylor used to wear.
2: Though Visser has spent her life around the good and the great, the prince impresses her with various stories about his royal upbringing and deep pockets.
7: I remember once that my husband, Bob, asked him which one of the king's wives was his mother, and he said, oh, the good one. And he just didn't doubt him. You know, he, he talked the part, he dressed the part, he drove the part. <laughs> so we said, wow, that's really interesting.
2: Soon, Fisher Island's residents are whispering about the enclave's newest arrival. Azaz Tarine is a special agent in the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service.
3: Oh, there's like your highness um, or his highness. People from Fisher Island didn't know how to respond, you know, and so he'd have one of the people on his crew and be like, well, you know, you can just bow a little bit. And, you know, he is a prince after all,
2: and people are like... Okay, I I guess I will do that. The prince isn't just making his presence known to his neighbors. His Instagram is an ostentatious catalog of his royal wealth. You know what it is? We shut the pools down so that a boss can swim in private. Yeah, you know what it is? Presidential suite. Tell him, Foxy, what a new bathroom look like. $300,000 bathroom for anyone considering doing business with him, it's ready proof that he's a guy who knows how to make big money. Like at first
5: glance, if you were looking at it, you would just think, oh, this is another one of these, just, I call them peacocks, you know, who's just showing off his life on Instagram. You know, the beautiful life, you know, the sweet life. But
6: the great thing about the Instagram account is he loves his dog and he has this dog named Foxy and he treats Foxy
2: like a queen. Show them your new bed, Foxy. 57 Cadillac. License plate says spoiled. But Foxy isn't the only royal pictured here. There are also photos of Saudi Arabia's ruling family with captions like fam and uncle. If this man, Prince Al-Walid bin Talal, truly is the prince's uncle, He's not a bad relative to have. According to a 2001 CNBC report, al Malid has an Airbus A340, a Boeing 767, and a 283-foot yacht once owned by Donald Trump. Then, there's his house. Quaint it isn't. Its
8: 317 rooms include 18 sitting rooms, 15 dining rooms, 10 bedrooms, 16 pantries, and one dozen elevators. The garage is big, too. It has to be to accommodate the prince's hundreds of cars. There's the obligatory rolls, and of course, the Batmobile.
2: With a combined wealth in the trillions, there are two things most Americans know about the Saudi royal family. One, they're rich beyond imagination. And two, their money comes from oil. For decades, the kingdom's wealth has been intertwined with the Saudi Arabian Oil Company, or Aramco. We have no official
6: evaluation of what this company's worth because it's privately held, but it's it's estimated to be in the trillions. We've talked about
2: their IPO. In 2016, word begins to spread that Aramco is going public.
7: Plus, we'll bring you an update on the timing for the world's largest ever IPO, Saudi Aramco, a giant. They new comments out this morning from the Saudi crown prince. He says the Aramco
9: IPO will still take place next year, and the valuation of the company could top two trillion dollars.
4: It was definitely all over the news, and people were trying to get in on the preferred stock. People were trying to angle to to get as much stock
2: as they could. Following the announcement. The new arrival on Fisher Island begins offering investors a way to share in the wealth.
6: He's claiming that he owns a percentage of Saudi Aramco. And he tells people, I'm going to sell you a percentage of my ownership in Saudi Aramco. And then when it goes public, you're going to make five times the amount of your money.
2: With such a potential upside, there are plenty of people willing to hear out Miami's Saudi prince. There's no shortage of U.S., British, foreign investors and business folks that
4: want to do business with the royal family. Who doesn't want to
3: at least hear what a person has to say that has all these things at their disposal and is selling a good deal to me.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,
2: Whether it's on the hot streets of Miami or somewhere else altogether, it's hard to forget a first encounter with the man who calls himself Prince Khalid bin Al Saud.
0: I met him when I was sitting in a bar there in Eaton Rapids. Eaton Rapids is a very small town and it's real country. Here he walks in wearing a very long white fur coat And he has a haircut that's kind of like a bowl over his head. And he's got a lot of bling on. And he's got long, acrylic nails. And he's quite flamboyant. And everybody in that place just stopped and looked like, oh, my God, what do we have here?
2: What they have is not a Saudi prince. It's a Colombian orphan named Anthony Gignac. Lisa Whitehead was once partners with Gignac's adoptive mother, a Michigan woman who's now deceased, named Nancy. In 1977, Nancy and her then-husband adopted Anthony and his brother from Bogota, Colombia. They brought them to live in a nice middle-class home in Plymouth Township, Michigan. Gignac will later say his pre-adoption days in Bogota were filled with hardship. And Whitehead says Nancy tells stories about Anthony and his brother that back this up.
0: I remember her saying that they would eat and they would stuff food in their mouth, like a chipmunk. And because they had gotten used to not knowing when they were gonna get their next food, so they could see things like that that were kind of reminders that they had had it pretty rough up until that point.
2: Having come from nothing, Gignac begins at an early age to claim he's really quite something. In first grade, he tells a teacher his family owns the fabulous Grand Mackinac Hotel in Northern Michigan. The next year, he claims to be the son of actor Dom DeLuise. A mental health professional, Whitehead says Gignac was obsessed with
0: wealth. I think that he's a perfect example of what happens when you have early childhood trauma. He could figure out from his early life in Colombia that if you have money, you have power, and if you have money and power, then you have safety and respect. And I think that he will do what he needs to do in order to get it.
2: In the 1970s and 80s, few people in the world better represented the nexus of wealth and power than a businessman named Adnan Khashoggi.
4: While Khashoggi got his start in California, the real basis
9: for his fortune is in Saudi Arabia.
2: Serving as the president of the Triad Holding Company, Khashoggi became a mega-rich Saudi arms dealer and a deal-maker. Khashoggi, who has no diplomatic status, does not have to
4: go through customs. His wealth is his free pass. Officials of the Sudan were waiting to meet him, as someone is waiting to meet him everywhere he goes. After all, triad means a whole lot of money, and people with a whole lot of money get a whole
2: lot of respect. Khashoggi is a real-life, walking, talking episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And in Michigan, a boy who once lived on the streets of Columbia seems to take notice. In early 1988, Police receive a report that Gignac has been cruising around Detroit in a limo, living it up on a stolen credit card belonging to his friend's father. At the same time, Ann Arbor police also learn Gignac's been pretending to be someone he's not, a Saudi prince with a familiar name. Judge Kirk Tabby is a former assistant prosecutor in Washtenaw County, Michigan.
1: He used the name Ednan Khashoggi. So it was obvious he was reading and paying attention to what was going on and thought he could live that lifestyle. That's why he chose the name, is what he said.
2: According to police reports, Gignac scams a stay at a University of Michigan fraternity house, claiming to be Prince Khashoggi, sole heir to the Saudi throne. People liked this idea. They, They
1: wanted to entertain a Saudi prince. It was something that they felt like they could get something out
2: of it. The scheme works at first. But soon, records say, Western Union calls a fraternity member asking if he authorized a charge of $125 to someone named Anthony Gignac. He says he did not. Then, reports say, the prince begins enjoying himself a little too much, and questions arise. He was a Saudi and a devout Arab Muslim
1: why was he drinking? Why was he partying like this? And uh, they weren't, you know, maybe as he's letting loose, but then again, is he really? So they that
2: kind of made him even more suspicious. Eventually, Gignac is arrested, and Judge Kirk Tabby, then a prosecutor, talks to the budding criminal and notices a glint in his eye. He, he was
1: very fascinated that he was able to do this so easily. It was as if he had found a way to survive or a way to live that was so amazing to him. And he knew that he could get things and flash it and show people, I can be wealthy, I'm good at this. He thought flaunting money and showing all of that was the way to go for him.
5: And he's not about to stop. He kind of devoted his whole life since his teen years to just pretending to be somebody else. Why? Your guess is as good as mine. Why does anybody pretend to be somebody other than who they are? I guess to run away from who they are.
2: After being released on bond in his Ann Arbor case, Gignac flees to California. There, he begins running a series of royal scams that will come to define his life. Over the years, he poses as a variety of Saudi princes to get what he wants but settles on the name Prince Khalid bin Al Saud, using it in a series of escalating frauds.
6: Really, his M.O. was to go into these hotels, these fine hotels. He would tell them he was a prince. He would run up astronomical charge, staying in the best rooms that they had. He's ordering limos. He's shopping at the finest places around. But whatever credit card he gave them was either tapped out already on its credit limit, or it was a fraudulent credit card. And then eventually, the cops are called. That really was his game for a good 20 years.
2: Dubbed the Prince of Fraud by the LA Times, Gignac develops a loud confrontational style that seems to work.
6: Nobody would really believe that if you were faking this, you would come in and draw that much attention to yourself. scream and yell he was very audacious he was very bold and he was very aggressive because it's so bold and opposite what you normally would expect a con man to do it's probably why it worked
2: gignac's con is good enough to overcome some pretty obvious shortcomings he looked like an overweight
5: hispanic guy from south america or latin america it just looked preposterous preposterous because nobody looks like this in the Saudi Kingdom. I mean, was he swarthy? Was he darker skin? Yes. But did he have that appearance, you know, of being from Saudi Arabia? Absolutely not.
2: So why then do so many people fall for Gignac's princely Khan? Saima Mosin is the first assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan.
0: Perhaps there's an incentive uh, to believe him if someone believes they're going to get something out of it, um, or a fascination with royalty. There could be any number of reasons why people find him to be credible, but they do, and they do it again and again. It's, it's really quite astounding.
2: In December 2002, Anthony Gignac is fresh out of jail from a princely scheme in Florida when he decides to go shopping. Once again, posing as Prince Khalid bin Al Saud, he takes a trip to a mall outside Troy, Michigan. Here, he visits a Saks Fifth Avenue and a Neiman Marcus, where he is caught on a store security camera. Gignac will later admit he charges more than $13,000 to an account at Neiman Marcus belonging to a real Saudi prince named Khalid.
3: That was something I was never able to figure out, how he was able to acquire the number, whether it was force of personality. The reports in our case indicated that that he had a passport of some sort, identifying himself as Khalid bin Al Saud. I never saw the passport. It was never recovered by the police. So it it was a little bit mystifying for me how he was able to do it.
2: Eventually, Neiman Marcus employees become suspicious and decide to call their corporate headquarters
3: chief fraud investigator basically said you know that's anthony gignac that he knew immediately that it was gignac and what the scam was and he was on in a minute call the police get this guy arrested he's anthony gignac it's not the prince
9: this podcast is supported by fedex dear small and medium businesses no one wants happy customers more than you do so you need a business partner just like you like fedex who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you
8: Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of bonnie plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch bonnie plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now.
1: Save
2: On January 3rd, 2003, Gignac returns to the mall and is fitted for handcuffs. A few months later, he sits in an interrogation room across from Jerry Gleason, then a prosecutor in Oakland County, Michigan. In this exclusive video, the so-called Prince claims that this is no scam. He says he actually knows the Saudis. And what he's done, he's done with their approval.
5: I can pick up the phone right now, call the Saudi Arabian Embassy, and speak to Ambassador Katam. What if I call the Saudi Arabian Embassy and I dial it on myself?
2: Call him. Gignac boldly says the relationship began after he had a homosexual encounter with the real Saudi prince. He claims the family has been supporting him ever since to buy his silence. They found out
7: that I was
5: having a homosexual affair with him, they cut their heads off. Yeah. Well, or still want to throw
7: them off a building? No, actually it depends on some, some, there's some. No, the Sharia says, means if you see me in like, in the practice of homosexuality, throw them from the highest building, or the highest wall, or have a wall fall behind them.
2: Gignac claims the Saudis created a hush money trust fund worth millions for him, and says there are other perks too. Including the ability to run up charges at a certain luxury store.
5: Prince Khalid himself
7: called me, told me that I could use his account because he knew I just got out of jail, told me
5: that I could spend $25,000. I will have people in even markets testing. Why does he have to tell you you can do this if you have this trust fund with all this money?
2: Gignac has official looking legal documents attesting to the existence of the trust fund but federal prosecutors will later say he uses papers like these to further his fraud. And Gleason isn't buying the former orphan story.
4: I've also dealt with the princes and the the royal family's lawyers in Washington. I know that there is no trust fund. I know that there's been no negotiations.
2: During their chat, Gleason and Gignac begin to discuss next steps and what a trial might look like.
5: Realistically, if you're gonna try and portray me, That I'm a huge con man, and that you want to use all my past criminal history.
6: But you are a huge con man. For some, you are a huge
5: con man.
2: Let's quit the bull.
5: (laughs) You are a huge con (laughs) man. (laughs) So we're doing well, okay? I I know it's amazing, but let me say, wait, let me. I want a deal.
2: He gets one. In May 2004, Gignac pleads guilty to six counts of using the real Prince's Neiman Marcus account without his permission. A judge sentences him to spend between 34 months and 15 years in state prison, but his troubles are just beginning. Back when he was first arrested in Troy, court records say Gignac made some very bold statements about his status as a prince living in America.
0: He claimed that he had a diplomatic immunity and he was immune from prosecution. As a result of that claim, the uh, Troy Police Department contacted um, federal authorities, and the State Department sent this agent to go and investigate. According to
2: a memo provided to American Greed, a State Department Diplomatic Security Service agent interviews Gignac and hears the same story about his alleged royal love affair and so-called trust fund. When the feds begin an investigation... An assistant to the Saudi ambassador tells them that Gignac was not a member of the royal family nor associated in any way with the Saudi royal family. I believe that what turned out to be true is
0: that his name was Anthony Gignac.
2: After serving 20 months on the state charges from the Troy incident, Gignac pleads guilty in federal court to a count of impersonating a foreign diplomat and another count of attempted bank fraud related to a scheme he tried while locked up. But this is not the last time authorities will hear from Prince Khalid. After serving state and federal time on charges related to the incident at the mall in Troy, Michigan, Anthony Gignac is a free man. According to the government, shortly after his release in March 2015, His Royal Highness gets right back to business. And he's no longer content with the minor scores of his past. He's running all these
6: petty scams, 10, 15, $20,000. And when he gets to Miami, he takes a giant jump. Now we're talking millions and millions and
4: millions of dollars. This was the, the end all be all, to go after this as aggressively and as quick as he could to defraud as many people and innocent victims as possible.
2: As he gets his operation going, Gignac seems to have learned an important lesson from his past royal schemes.
6: Anthony Gignac was smart enough to realize
3: that if he was too accessible, he couldn't possibly be a Saudi prince. And how he protects that is by limiting his interaction with uh, his victims. Some people never even physically met him, but they talked to him on the phone or texted with them. Obviously, it. it seems to lend credence to his image, that I'm someone important, I have people to do things for me, but it's also just so that he doesn't get called out on things that he doesn't know anything about.
2: If he is going to hang in the shadows, Gignac needs others to help him make connections and talk up the Prince. Soon after his release in 2015, he uses LinkedIn to connect with an Englishman living in North Carolina named Carl Marden Williamson.
6: It's kind of unclear on who contacted who first, but somewhere along there, they eventually figure out together that they're going to do this con.
2: In late 2015, Williamson travels to London, where he meets with a well-established investment banker. Williamson says he's working for a Saudi prince and claims they're looking for a project in which His Highness can invest. After being shown bank documents and a Saudi family tree, the English banker says she agrees to help the prince find projects seeking capital.
6: It is the most incredible part of the story, because if he doesn't con this UK investment banker, then he doesn't get anything else from this point on. Anthony Gignac now really starts to see that he can make as much money as he possibly
2: wants. The banker in England is never charged with any wrongdoing and says she was duped. Along with Williamson, she brings in business people from around the world who are led to believe the prince is going to invest his fortune in their projects. And Mr. Gignac
4: would read the Wall Street Journal every single day when he was in prison. So he was familiar with business practices. He knew what buttons to push with successful businessmen and women and he was able to sell that image and persona after 20 or 30 years of defrauding people throughout the
2: world. Though they think they found an angel investor, the prince's money for their projects never comes through. He does, however, offer to let them in on something even more lucrative.
3: Because of our relationship, because I trust you now with this you know, back and forth that may or may not work out, I'm willing to cut you in on this other thing. All you gotta do is give me X amount of money and I'll triple it for you in no time. And that's the game, that's the end game there.
2: At first, Gignac pitches investment in a fuel trading platform promising 14.5% returns. Then there's his scheme offering pre-IPO shares of Saudi Aramco. The idea that
4: you could buy a good portion of that company, which is valued at two trillion at a discounted rate, And an outstanding return of investment is something that lured a lot of people to Mr.
2: Gignac. If it seems too good to be true, Gignac has plenty of answers, and even forms of proof.
3: He did have documents, and it was more than just throwaway documents that you can just get on the street, right? He knew the the names of attorneys and firms, and and he knew what he needed to put on these documents to give them credibility, and he would just fabricate them completely.
2: By 2017, Gignac is living on Fisher Island, having fully assumed the role he's been playing all his adult life. He would
4: wear Saudi clothing. He would wear a thobe, which is the white cloth that goes from the uh, neck down to the feet. He would also wear the headdress, which is is a smog or a kafia. There's different variations of it.
3: He's got diplomatic license plates, and he's driving openly, right? Like, he's not just hiding it, like, only when it's parked. Like, he is leaving the island with these tags on. He was just so out out in the open with his scheme, with his fraud, that people are like, this has to
2: be real. Gignac plays the part of a prince to a tee, down to the way he treats his lowly servants. He wasn't
3: uh, a benevolent monarch, for lack of a better term, right? Like, he was rude to everyone he was with. He was kind of very short, um, almost insulting of of the people that were in his own circle. And because to him, that's what he thought he should do.
2: But the ultimate prop in his scheme is his condo on Fisher Island. After hiding behind the curtain for months, he shows the place off to his investors and on occasion lets visitors catch a glimpse of his incredible wealth.
5: Anthony Gignac clearly saw this as an address that he could use to give the impression that he was of this world, that he moved in this world, and he did a pretty good job of it. He's got the DSS security agents with their badges. He's got the fleet of
6: cars. He's got the lush penthouse overlooking the water on the exclusive island in Miami. It says, Sultan, outside the door. He, he kind of has everything you would expect, so why wouldn't this be true?
2: With his scheme firmly established, Hignac hooks in more than 20 victims, getting them to invest over $8 million. But none of it goes to Aramco or anything else he's promised.
6: He was paying some initial investors back from investors later on, but through all of it, he was
2: using the money to live this life. In Miami Beach, nothing shouts classic luxury like the Fountain Blue.
5: For decades, it was the It Hotel. And then it got long in the tooth like a lot of Miami Beach.
2: According to former federal prosecutor Trinity Jordan, after spending hundreds of millions of dollars on renovations, the hotel's owners go looking for an infusion of capital.
6: It was just kind of whispered amongst the investment community, that they were looking for someone to purchase 20 to 30% ownership in the Fountain Blue. So that kind of made its way to Anthony Gignac's investment banker in the UK. She heard about the opportunity, told Anthony Gignac, and he instructed her then to make contact with the Fountain Blue Hotel,
2: and let's get in on that. Leading the negotiation on the hotel side is Jeffrey Sofer, a billionaire real estate developer once married to supermodel L. McPherson. Before long, the prince has suffered believing he's ready to make a major investment.
6: He makes an offer of $400 million to purchase 30% of the Fountain Blue Hotel, which they immediately accept.
2: To sell the lie, His Highness brings a hotel representative to Fisher Island, showing off his garage full of exotic cars and a document that proves he has the means to complete the deal. He's got this
5: letter from the Bank of Dubai that he's got $600 million in some sort of sovereign fund, readily available to invest in a property like the hotel.
2: At one point, however, the hotel team begins to ask questions about who they're really dealing with. And when Gignac gets word, he doesn't back down. He doubles down. Pretending his honor has been insulted, he sends his London investment banker to talk to hotel representatives.
5: It's been represented to Sofer during this period that The Saudi prince doesn't appreciate the skepticism, that there's been some doubts about his credibility and about who he is, and he'd really appreciate a gift. Then the gift has to be
6: at least $50,000. So they go and buy him a Cartier bracelet for $50,000 and present it to him and apologize. And so now the deal's back on.
2: Of course, the prince doesn't have the money to buy a hotel. So while the deal might be back on, it never goes anywhere. He had no intention of actually putting any money into it because
5: he was always in the business of doing the opposite, trying to get people to give him money, to invest in things that really were a complete fabrication. He was always trying to get people to invest in his business opportunities, his
2: business deals.
5: That was always his
2: M.O. If that's what he intends with Sofer, he never gets the chance to set the hook. His newest mark is starting to get wise. And one of the things that sort of stands
5: out is his eating habits. He's supposed to be, you know, a Saudi prince. He's supposed to be, you know, a believer in Islam, a Muslim faith. And he's wolfing down all this bacon and pork products. There were so many things that they're like, is he really a good Muslim? Is he really
2: a good member of the Saudi royal family. As questions arise, a professional security firm is hired to look into the prince. And it doesn't take them long to reach a conclusion. This guy is
6: not the prince. This guy is Anthony Gignac. And he just got out of
5: federal prison about three years ago. To Sofer's credit, he did figure it out where others hadn't. It didn't cost him anything more than just a Cartier bracelet.
2: After making the discovery, the P.I. brings what he's learned to the feds. Investigators from the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service start digging. And it becomes apparent that Gignac has once again been committing the federal crime of impersonating a diplomat. But they wonder, how is he doing it in such style?
3: We knew who we had, but as far as what questions we had is, is what's the endgame? What is he trying to do?
4: And then when we started to peel the layers back a little bit, we saw this significant financial piece. Didn't get any less crazy along the way.
2: Unaware he's the target of a federal investigation, in the fall of 2017, Anthony Gignac takes an overseas business trip using someone else's passport. Once he sets foot back on American soil, a team of agents from the Diplomatic Security Service moves in on his Fisher Island home, and Agent Azaz Tarin is waiting for him at JFK Airport in New York. Right off the bat, he is just spouting
3: all these conspiracy theories, playing the Prince thing, um, like, you know, I'm from Saudi Arabia, and then, where's my dog? Like, what, what are you doing with my dog? Where's Foxy? So I had to, like put him on speaker, I had, an agent with his dog, Foxy. I was like, is Foxy okay? Yes, Foxy's okay. And just immediately, just waterworks, uncontrollably crying, shaking, freaking
2: out. Once agent sees Gignac's belongings and begin to discover business documents, the case quickly shifts. It was a
4: no-brainer that we were going to transition from an aggravated identity theft case and passport fraud impersonation of a diplomat to a larger financial investigation that involved money and bank accounts and assets throughout the world. I mean, we followed the money.
3: That's what part of the, the core of the investigation was, is we were following them, Where is this money coming from? How is he affording all this stuff? And it, it was pretty pretty easy to figure out that
2: it wasn't coming from legitimate means. As their investigation unfolds, agents uncover Gignac's multi-million dollar investment scheme and realize how far-reaching it is. Mr. Gignac preyed on individuals from all walks of
4: life. Everybody was prey, everybody was fair game.
3: He's not just scamming billionaires and large companies, but he was also scamming, you know, salt of the earth people that are not billionaires.
2: A few weeks after Gignac's arrest, the feds get word about his alleged co-conspirator, Carl Williamson, the man he met on LinkedIn who helped introduce him to investors worldwide.
6: He left a suicide note he didn't admit his role. He admitted that he was going to go to prison. And he told his family that if he had to go to prison and
2: be away from them, that he'd rather just, you know, not be around. Following Williamson's death, prosecutors dismissed charges against him. Then in March 2019, Anthony Gignat pleads guilty to impersonating a foreign diplomat, aggravated identity theft, wire fraud, and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Two months later, he is sentenced to more than 18 years in federal prison. Gignac did not respond to American Greed's requests for comment. Despite the craziness of his story, those who've come face to face with Anthony Gignac say his criminality and greed are nothing to be scoffed at.
7: For a while I thought, Well, the poor thing, he must be really mentally ill. But when he was deemed competent to stand trial, that meant he knew what he was doing.
4: He's a con man, period. For every one truth he tells, it's backed up by multiple lies.
3: This isn't a celebrity fraudster. He's a predator. He is preying on people in in, in any way that he possibly can. It wouldn't shock me if he was in prison telling people he was a prince right now.
2: Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.